Well, uh, I have, as most of you know, been away for three weeks. Thanks to Bruxy for doing such an excellent job. Uh, it went that great that series. That hippie freak can really nail it when it comes to religion. He, he's got it down. I tell you, I love that guy. Uh, and it had, I'll say a little bit more about this trip that we were on, but as the wise philosopher Dorothy said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. So it's always good to come back and, and, and be a part of this. Um, before I get into the message, there's something that's been on my heart I want to share. I'm sure it's something that many of us have been thinking about. And it's just a brief word about the Ferguson tragedy. All right? Uh, just a little reflection here. It's a teaching moment of sorts. You know, here's a young man, the day before he's supposed to go to college, kind of like where Vanessa was, um, and he's shot six times by a police officer. A number of eyewitnesses, right in broad daylight, say that he was about 35 feet away with his arms raised saying, don't shoot, I'm unarmed. And um, we hold that a person's innocent until proven guilty, of course. But I, and I'm usually really good at, I'm really, really good at imagining uh, scenarios where a guilty-looking person is innocent. Uh, I have to confess that on this one, it's very, very hard. How was, his, how was the officer's life threatened by this guy? Um, the thing is, is that, that this is not as rare as you might think. I mean, th- this particular one, because of the circumstances, has gotten a lot of media attention. But this happens far more frequently than some of us would like to know or admit. I mean, just three weeks ago, Eric Gardner... You've heard about him, this African-American man, father of six. Apparently he was selling illegal cigarettes on a street corner. He begins to be questioned by police and he gets into a scuffle and six officers hold him to the ground and he ends up being choked to death. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? I, saw, I came across one study this week which monitors uh, police violence, especially uh, along racial lines. And it reported that in 2012, which was the last year they had statistics for, in 2012, 137 African, unarmed African-American men were killed by police or security guards. 27 of them had uh, been diagnosed with mental issues and were acting erratically. And for that, they paid with it for their life. Um, so what events like this do, among other things, what events like this do is it brings to the surface something that is always just there beneath the surface, but is usually not acknowledged. And that is that, that, the, that white folks and African-American folks, as well as other minorities, can live, can live in very different worlds here in America. It's one of the reasons why, for example, on a poll that was done, 83% of African-Americans see this shooting as having racial significance, saying something significant about race relationships, but only about 30% of white folks interviewed uh, said that. Very different perceptions. They came out with the O.J. Simpson trial. Radically different ways of looking at things, and those radically different ways of looking at things are anchored in radically different experiences. See, as a white guy in a white-dominated culture, and has been this way from the start, that was part of the whole manifest destiny that this country was started on, as a white guy, I live in a world that feels pretty fair, racially fair, racially equal, just, everything's fine. I never once have wondered whether the reason I'm being stopped or questioned by a police officer is maybe because I'm half Irish. Maybe, that's not something to do with it. But I have African-American brothers and sisters for whom that has been a common occurrence. And see, that, that, that changes the way you look at things, doesn't it? Changes, we have very different experiences. We can live in very, very different kinds of worlds. I remember the time when my daughter, the coin first dropped in the slot with my daughter. 
Uh, she was dating her now husband, uh, Halos, I'm talking about Danae, and uh, he's African-American. And one time they, on a date, were just talking in a car parked by uh, a curb and talking. And suddenly they hear a tap on the window and it was a police officer. Uh, Halos rolls down the window and the police officer says to Danae, leans in and says, Danae, uh, uh, ma'am, are you, are you okay? Are you okay? She goes, yeah, yeah, we're just having a talk. He leans in a little more intently and says, looks very closely into her eyes and says, are you sure you're okay? Is everything fine here? She goes, yeah, I just told you that. And then the police officer has Halos get out of the car and go back to the trunk. Behind the trunk, tells him to stand there. And as he's kind of searching the car with his flashlight, says, okay, ma'am, I want to know, are you here of your own free volition? Is everything as it should be? And the coin kind of drops in the slot to Danae, for Danae about what exactly is going on here. And she begins to get really angry. Uh, Halo said that he had to kind of come and you know, be a buffer between her and the police officer because uh, he didn't want her to say or do anything stupid. Um, when she came home, she was just livid. See, uh, she got a slice of reality that she otherwise wouldn't have got. As a white person, you float up here and, and, and you don't bump into these things. But if, you, if, if you're in relationships with others who are not up here... Uh, in this privileged status, you begin to learn that there's all sorts of walls and uh, obstacles and things you bump into. Halos just kind of laughed it off as saying, well, this is just another example of DWB. It's happened to me several times, driving while black. (laughs) Except we were parked while black, but same thing. And see, that's something that would never occur to me. This is to say this, that that, um, it's so important, and here I'm speaking to people who look like me, white folks, that we understand that we have a unique privileged perspective on things and we must not normalize that because when we normalize that we think it's this universal uh then then we dismiss the claims of others uh it's easy to say oh they're just playing the race card again or or they're exaggerating things oh yeah we all would none of us like to get pulled over but you know don't 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 things aren't as bad as, as they're saying what needs to happen is for us to intentionally... See, here's the thing. We're not called to fix society. We're not called to have be smarter than other people or morally superior to other people and think that we have all the solutions to society's problems, because we don't. But we are called to be the church. We're called to imitate Jesus, which means living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And love isn't just a warm sentiment. Love is about action. Jesus, throughout his ministry, entered into solidarity, intentionally went out of his way, Though we could have been floating up in the abyss of, of, of heaven, he enters into where people are at, enters into solidarity with those who are marginalized and being crushed by the system, who aren't benefiting from the system, uh, who are you know, on the outside of things. He enters into solidarity with them. And on the cross, he enters into solidarity with all who are oppressed, namely all of us. And we are called to live like that, and we're called to love like that. Which means it's incumbent upon us... To, whereas there's a natural aversion to suffering, that's part of our fallen nature, we're to be a people who are willing to go out of our way to enter into solidarity with those who are on, on the underside of the system that maybe we ourselves benefit from. And to give credibility to other perspectives that are different from ours and other experiences that are other than ours. We're, we're called to empathize and enter into solidarity with others, which means that, that, that Michael Brown isn't just someone else's son who got shot. He's our son. He's our son, and that reframes everything. He's our son, and amen. And when you enter into that, now, now you don't have to be morally superior to anybody or, 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 or think that you're smarter than any, any, anybody uh, in order to enter into solidarity with people and go, ouch, this is our son. And so you join the voice of saying there's something broken in this system, something fundamentally wrong, systemically wrong with this. 
And it's not just about this one shooting, it's about a pattern. And so the job of the church is to do that. And see, if we did that, if we, if we would set aside our limited perspectives to learn from others, to humbly submit to others, and let them speak into our life and share their experiences... And if we did that along racial lines and along socioeconomic lines and along gender lines and along gender orientation lines, as well as every other line that the society puts up there, if we were a humble people like that, as we ought to be, since we don't get our life from our, the rightness of our perspective, right? We get it from Jesus Christ. And if we did that, we would be modeling to the world something the world desperately needs. And that's what the church is called to do, to offer the world a beautiful alternative to what's already out there. And so I encourage us to be a people who go out of our way to develop relationships that are not homogenous. Uh, develop relationships and, and, and enter into the experience of others. Become a people who empathize and enter, enter into the ouch of those who are suffering from, maybe from the very same system that we benefit from. That is what the church is called to do. And then we put on display the beauty of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Okay. Now, I, I uh, want to speak on this message that I, is really on my heart. I, I'm entitling it for reasons that will become clear in a moment. God in the gallows. Um, but I want to kind of back into the message by sharing a little bit about what's been going on the last three weeks. And the reason I want to do that is this. Woodland Hills Church has felt increasingly called over the last five years or so to not just be ministering in this location, but to... Uh, begin to play a role in this wider movement that's going on, this beautiful kingdom movement that is, is rising up all over the place, where people are catching a vision for the Jesus-looking God and the call to be a Jesus-looking people, and it's so different from, from, from what people have usually considered church to be. All over this is happening, and we are playing a, a catalytic role for some of this, and so we're asking the question, how can we pour into this and help shape this and, and, and form this? And one of the things we want to be doing is, is allowing me to speak into that and setting me free a little bit to, to, to begin to pour into that. And that's what this last three weeks was about. And since you are Woodland Hills Church and you're the ones who have set me free to do this, I thought it'd be good to share back with you some of the fruit of what happened, because this is about us. This is the role that we're playing. So I'm just going to share. Yes. I share a little bit of this. I, it started in Innsbruck uh, three weeks ago. I uh, flew into Innsbruck, Austria. And the first five days was then an academic conference. Because part of what I want to do is to influence the influencers. So we're talking to theologians and philosophers. It was a high-level academic conference. I delivered a paper on, on uh, uh, a particular topic that turned to be real controversial. And so it was a lot of fun and a lot of you know, stuff going on. But I'm basically just trying to get Christian educators to begin to think about God in more dynamic ways and in more Jesus-looking ways. And so, so that was fun. Uh, but what was really interesting at the conference was this, were the students I met, a number of students uh, from France and Switzerland and Germany, Austria, uh, who are getting this vision of the kingdom, getting this theology. They're writing papers on, on the warfare worldview and, and openness and, and all sorts of things like that. I've got three folks who are doing doctoral dissertations on this. And they tell me that there's something of a movement that's beginning in, in universities of people grabbing onto this theology, Christians grabbing onto this theology. And, and, and what these folks want to do, and most of them are parishioners, by the way, or sort of a lifeline form, uh, they want to uh, uh, become pastors and educators who further the kingdom by sharing those gifts. And it was just beautiful to see this and to hear this and to get this feedback. And then I went up to Basel, Switzerland, and I did a three-day conference at uh, this beautiful city. There I am wearing the exact same clothes I'm wearing now. I actually haven't, <laughs> I haven't taken them off or showered since. You know, arrivederci. <laughs> this was a blast, you guys. We had 50, 55 students 
coming from all over Europe. It was, some of these people came from long distances to be part of this seminar. And, and they were sharp, they were bright, they were, they were, they were, yeah, we just had a great time. I taught on the Jesus-looking God and the nonviolent way of reading the Old Testament and uh, the warfare worldview and the problem of evil and things like that. And it was just really a great time. Um, most of these folks were parishioners, and some of them gave beautiful, beautiful testimonies that were just incredible. Uh, we, uh, had, I, I met up with my wife and two friends here at Basel, um, and the two friends were, were coming on the part of Renew uh, because we wanted to document this and, and, and get some of these interviews on, 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 on tape. And we'll be showing them on the Woodland Hills website and on the Renew website in the months to come. But some of them were so beautiful, they brought tears to our eyes. People telling about the difference that this theology uh, and vision has made in their life. So here's Gabby and Jason. And Gabby found, I just stumbled across the book, Is God to Blame, about eight years ago, which is about the time that she found out she's got a very, a very aggressive form of cancer. And she's been battling this straight for eight years. And they're church planters in Austria. They have a church in Austria. Just beautiful people. I, I, within 10 seconds, I fell in love with these people. They're just so sweet and gentle and so, so quintessential kingdom. But they just report, and they, they, they kind of tear up as they talk about this, that, that this... This gave them a way of framing what's happening to Gabby in a way that they didn't have to question God's character or God's will or motive in any of this. It's changed the way they understand suffering. It's changed the way they understand their life. It's changed the way they understand God. It's changed the way they understand ministry. It's revolutionized everything. And they came all the way up from Austria just to tell us that. And then here's Eric and Tatiana. These dear people, they've been missionaries in the Ukraine for some time. Um... And Tatiana tells about how Eric came across this theology for about oh, eight years ago. And like, like Gabby and Jason, he is a parishioner every day, going through the, all the archives of, of the sermons. And he's just feeding on this. He's gobbling it up. And she says that's made him into a totally different man. And so she was thanking us for transforming her husband. <laughs> but here's the thing. He's got a hold of this vision. So he, he, in the Ukraine, started two different communities that are based on the podcast. Just inviting friends over and they start podcasting. They've got themselves two churches now. And uh, now he's spending a good percentage, even the majority of his missionary time, translating the sermons into German and Russian because, Russian because he's fluent in both of them. And he wants the word to be getting out there. Uh, and his plan is to eventually be translating the books into German and Russian. Uh, and th- so this is his passion. He's just doing this on his own. It's just a beautiful thing. And I could give you dozens and dozens of uh, examples like this. But all of it is to say that, folks, you got to know, I mean, eight years ago or so, I felt fairly alone. Uh, I don't any longer. There's a tribe all over this planet. There's a movement going on, and it's in Russia, and it's in Switzerland, and it's in the Ukraine, and it's in Germany, and France, and China, and Africa, all over the place, even here in the United States. And it's beautiful, and we have the honor of playing a role in influencing that and being a catalyst uh, and helping shape that. It's just so, so exciting. It boggles my mind. And then we went to the, the Manuel's church. Manuel's one of the guys who's doing a doctoral dissertation on aspects of my theology. And, and he's a pastor of this church, which is uh, like a sister church of Woodland Hills. All the folks, you know, most of the folks are podcasters. They know about what goes on here. And the other guy is Andreas. He's a professor at Basel uh, a Seminary. Great guy. He did the translation uh, of my messages there. I preached in a morning service and an afternoon service. And both these folks are just so sold out on the kingdom theology that, you know, that's what they live for. And this Church of Manuel's is just so cool. Um, It's mainly younger people. It's got all this energy. Everything about it is edgy. They're in a warehouse, a very artsy-fartsy. they got all this cool stuff going on. 
they, they knew that I am into metal music, and so for their offering, the band, which is this awesome band, learned this, this, this song that they knew I liked, The Madness in Me by Skillet, and they played it during the offering. It was just so good. The, the gal's up there doing this monster voice. You know. I mean, and then during the worship service, you know, they're just playing this, this, this uh, fast music, and they're jumping up and down, and the energy is incredible, and God showed up in some powerful, powerful ways. It was just beautiful. Great ministry took place there. Yeah, Manuel is just this radical kingdom guy. I just love it. Now, after this, I was, in fact, I think a whole, whole team, but we're pretty exhausted. We had five days straight, and I had five days before that, so I was pretty exhausted. Now, someone in the, in the church had opened up uh, a cabin for us in the Alps to stay for a couple of days. Take a little R&R in the midst of this. Ah, <laughs> yes. And so here we are. Uh, we got to, this is kind of how they paid us. They let us stay for three days. The first day, the fog was so thick, you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. So you couldn't even know there was mountains out there. That was kind of a bummer. But the next day, it was beautiful. And so we got to go up, way up in the Alps. And it was so beautiful. Uh, you know, we just don't get that here in Minnesota. We got a lot of other nice things like mosquitoes, but we don't have these giant mountains. Uh, and here's Shelly and I, when we were up there... Um, Oh, there's a moment where we're just looking at this beauty and, and we are listening to this music together as we're watching this and we just begin to cry. We just, the beauty of God, the beauty of this creation, it, we just begin to cry. We were just overwhelmed by it. It's like one of those moments that you know that if you're remembering anything when you're 98, this will be one of the things you remember. It's just frozen there. It was a beautiful time just sharing that. So then we went from this incredible, beautiful God-encountering high to this very ugly, demonic-encountering low. I have had, since the age of 19, when I first learned about it, a, an obsession with the Holocaust. Just an obsession. I've taught, I taught a class at Bethel for eight, nine years on, on God after Auschwitz. And it was on my bucket list to go to Auschwitz and Birkenau uh, at some point before I die. And this was the opportunity to do it. Um, so here is the famous you know, entrance to Auschwitz. Arbeit macht frei. Uh, it means uh, work brings liberation, which is kind of an ironic, demonic twist to things. Um, and we went there first thing in the morning before the crowds came, which is how you should do this, because experiencing it in silence and alone is so much more powerful than going through with a crowd. And so one of the first places we went was the first gas chamber that was ever built in Auschwitz. Uh, and as we sat or stood in this, in, in this area, I, there's something about being in a vicinity where you know that over 70,000 people lost their lives in that space. 70,000, mostly Jews, but also political prisoners um, and Jehovah Witnesses and gays and everyone else that the Nazis thought were subhuman. And they were gassed there with Zyklon B. And standing in there knowing that that happened right there, and you can see scratches on the wall where people, as they're being gassed, are gasping for air, trying to get up to the opening where there's some, some, some oxygen. Uh, I don't know, if you enter into it with your imagination, you can still hear the screams and you can see the terror and you just imagine... The mothers holding their little children as they realize they're not taking a shower at all. They're being gassed. And the terror, it's still, it's still tangible there. I mean, there's other parts of, the, uh, of, of Auschwitz we went to where they had, like, mountains of hair here. They would, they would cut off the hair of these, these prisoners and, um, just before they gassed them, and they'd make cloth out of them and sell it, uh, reducing people to a product. Every one of those... Slices of hair represent a life that was snuffed out by the Nazis. Uh, you know, at one point I, I could just look at a little locket of hair and imagine that, that was the, a locket that belonged to my granddaughter. 
And see, it's when you make it personal that the evil begins to get on the inside because evil is always concrete and it's always personal, not abstract. So I imagine my daughter, right, my granddaughter and my daughter uh, having to go through this because everyone who went through that was someone's daughter or granddaughter or son or grandson. And, and imagine them dying the terrorizing, terrible death that they went through. Well, see, here's the thing. And this is why I think it's important to remember the Holocaust. It's easy to say in the comfort of an air-conditioned church, oh, God wills all things, it's all for His glory, whatever comes to pass. Yes, that may even bring some comfort. But if you say that while you're in this vicinity and imagining that this happened to your granddaughter and your daughter or your son or your grandson, well, it becomes a whole lot more difficult. And I've always believed that this is the incarnation of pure, incomprehensible, unfathomable evil. The level of evil here is this unprecedented history. And therefore, my conviction is that this ought to serve as the criterion by which the authenticity of our theology is measured. We have to be able to think about God in the worst reality that human existence has to offer, and this is it. We have to do our theology at the gates of hell, and this is it. And if we can't say what we want to say about God in the, at the precipice of a mass grave of gassed children, if you can't say it there, then you shouldn't ever say it. Because we live in a world where that actually happened. And, and so this, this, this orientation has really affected my theology. It's shaped me in, in some powerful ways. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all that I, I got from being personally present there, but, but it was just a, a tangible experience of the criteria that we need to live in if our theology is going to be authentic. Now, and this brings me to the, the message of God and the gallows. Um, and believe it or not, it's going to be setting us up to take communion. Um, people ask the legitimate question, where was God in Auschwitz? Where was God in the Holocaust? And there's a lot that you could say about that, and I've written a lot about that, but I want to focus on one particular aspect of that question right now. Usually when that question is asked, where was God? Why didn't God do something? The assumption is that God's up in the bliss of heaven, loving his glory with a smiling face, looking down upon miserable humanity with our gas children. And so it's a legitimate question. Why don't you do something? Why don't you intervene? Even worse, there's multitudes of people who think that God ordained this. This was part of His will. This is all for the good. Every one of those children was exactly what God willed. And so God's looking down and smiling, and He's actually doing all this. And now the question, where was God, or why didn't God stop, becomes utterly, utterly unanswerable. I think if you have either of those two pictures of God, the question, where was God, why didn't He do something at Auschwitz, becomes unanswerable. In fact, if you have either of those pictures of God, my conviction is that it, it almost justifies unbelief. Virtually every atheist I've ever known or read, the God they were rejecting was that God. A God who was either voyeuristically kind of into violence pornography as he's watching this happen, or even worse, a God who's causing this to happen. Well, out of moral integrity, a lot of people say, I can't believe in that God. But see, we always say that we need to take our, 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 our picture of God from the revelation that we're given in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone reveals what God, he fully reveals what God is truly like. And so we're to always keep our eyes fixed on him. And when we do that, we come up with a very, 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 very different picture of God. Here's what Isaiah says about the crucified God. 800 years before the cross ever happened, he says, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. This isn't a God who's up in the bliss and joy of his heaven looking down on miserable humanity. This is a God who intentionally leaves that in order to enter into our suffering and to bear our pain. He experiences it from the inside as though it was his own. That's what the cross is all about. Eli Wiesel, he, he was a well-known writer who is a well-known writer who uh, survived several concentration camps. And he wrote this novel about it called Night. Fantastic novel. And in there he recounts this one episode where he, he was a little boy at the time, but they sometimes were made, all, all of the uh, uh, prisoners at Auschwitz were made to watch these mass hangings where the, the Nazis would take people who had, had committed minor infractions or maybe no infractions at all, but they hung them on these gallows that are still there in Auschwitz, ten at a time. And, and all the folks would have to watch this. It was their way of installing terror in people. We, we, we could hang you at any moment. And usually when people were hung, they would die within a minute or two because the weight of their body would choke them. Unfortunately, one of the ten was this little boy. This one particular morning, about a ten-year-old boy. And the weight of his body wasn't sufficient to choke him immediately. It took him 10 to 15 minutes, writhing in pain before he died. Arms tied behind his back, legs tied, slowly suffocating. And as he's wiggling up there in pain, and the Jews are made to watch this, Eli Wiesel recounts one person whispering under the breath, Where is God? Where is God? And then he hears another person behind them whisper, He's up there on the gallows. He's in the pain of that little boy. And I think that is uttering a profound, profound truth. Where was God in Auschwitz? He was on the gallows. See, God is a God of perfect love. And to the degree that you love, you enter into the experience of another. You empathize. So their experience is your experience. Their pain is your pain. Sometimes their pain is your pain plus some. You experience more pain than them. You enter into that. And so if God is perfect love, God is a God who enters into fully the experience of all he loves, and he loves everybody. And this is exactly what the cross reveals. He bore our suffering. He bore our pain. In fact, Paul says that on the cross, Christ became our sin and became our curse. He so identifies with it, he becomes it in some sense. He experiences the curse, all the ramifications of sin, all of the the horrors, the hell that humanity has to offer. He dives into the deepest, most horrific nightmares crevice of it, and he owns it, he experiences it from the inside as though it was happening to him. And in doing that, he brings redemption. And so what we've got to know is that whatever we're going through, whatever you have gone through or will go through, you've got to know that God's on the inside of that. You're never alone in what, what, what you suffer. God's on the inside of that. He's not a voyeuristic God up in heaven looking down saying, oh, poor you, nor is he a God who's controlling all this. He's a God who enters into fully what human beings are experiencing. And honestly, in a world where, where a million children could be gassed and incinerated, in a world like this, where innocent people can get shot on the street, where wars are happening, Ebola is killing you know, thousands of people in Africa. In a world like this, this is the only God I could ever possibly believe in. It's the only God who's credible. A God who's on the inside of all the pain. You know, when I was at the University of Minnesota, I, I had come to faith as a senior in high school, but I lost it immediately when I went to the University of Minnesota as a philosophy major, just blew it sky high. 
And, and, and so over the course of a miserable year, I, I gradually kind of clawed my way back into the faith. And in the process of doing that, at one point, I was trying to decide if I could believe in God or not, a personal loving God. And the biggest obstacle to that was the problem of evil. In fact, it was Auschwitz. I was just learning about Auschwitz and the Holocaust. They had a four-part series on television that I was watching, and it was just overwhelming me, the level of evil that took place there. And I was taking a class in Hebrew, and and, uh, most of the students were Jewish, and they told stories about their grandparents who had gone through this, and they were just absolutely horrific. And so I was really beginning to taste the full depth of evil that happened there. And it led me to believe that, that there can't be a God, not a God who's all good and all powerful, who cares, there can't be, who could create a world where this level of evil could happen. But at the same time, I was taking a class in astronomy and learning about the expanse of the universe and the galaxies and, and, and just how vast it is and, and how complex it is. And, I, and that was leading me to think there must be a God. This can't be by accident. And just looking at the intricacies of the human mind that we can think rational thoughts and the composition of the human being, it seemed like there's got to be a God who somewhat corresponds to the way we are, otherwise we're completely out of sync with, with nature. And these two thoughts were absolutely in conflict with each other. There's got to be a God, but there can't be a God. And it came to a head one night, as I was up on a, this, this uh, uh, building top with a bunch of other students, and we were studying the moons of Jupiter for this astronomy class, and the professor was pontificating about the Big Bang and how all these billions and billions and billions of galaxies with billions of stars are, are you know, just accelerating from one another. And, and, and just the grandeur of all the stars, he was an atheist, but it was leading me to believe in God. It's like, this, this, this has got to be... Especially when I, he was talking about the Big Bang, and, and he said it all came from like a, a, a super dense matter that was about the size of a pinhead. And then I asked, well, where'd the pinhead come from? And, and, he, and he says, well, at some point you've got to stop asking questions. And I thought, oh, so it's a faith gig. It's a faith gig. Okay, I gotcha. It's faith either way. So I, I, I was leaning to think that there's got to be a God. But then I also had this experience of the Holocaust in my mind and said, there can't be a God. And as I walked back to my, off, my, my car this October night, my, my head was a ping pong ball going back and forth. There's got to be a God. There can't be a God. Look at the beauty of nature. There's got to be a God. Look at the terror of the Holocaust. There can't be a God. Oh, look at the grandeur of the stars and the intricacy of the human mind. There must be a God. But look at the suffering of little children, gas children. Think about that. There can't be a God. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And when I got to my car... Just before I got in, I, I said, I looked up to heaven, and I don't know if I said this out loud or thought it, or if it was a combination of the two. I, I, I can't tell. But I, I, I basically communicated to God, if God was up there, if you're up there, if you're up there and you're just looking down on this miserable mess here that you created, if you're up there and enjoying heaven while, while children are being gassed, then I have a moral obligation not to believe in you. The only way I can possibly believe in you is if you are in the inside of every experience. If you know what it's like to be a child just before you're, 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 you're gassed. If you know what it's like to be a person just prior to being shot or having to watch your loved ones get shot first. If you're on the inside of the horror of the mother and the father and the children. If you know what it's like to be a, the, the object of, of this level of evil that was perpetrated on these people. If, if you're on the inside of that, well then, then I could believe you. Believe in you. Otherwise I can't. As I got in the car and was about to turn it on, a light bulb went on and I think it was a revelation of God. Because it, it popped into my head like an audible voice I, I could hear inside my head. And it was simply this. What do you think the cross is all about? What do you think the cross is all about? The cross is God bearing our suffering and our pain. The cross is about him entering into not only our physical pain, but our psychological pain, our shame and our guilt and our condemnation and our, our sense of alienation from God. The cross is about God entering into 
uh, the very worst that humanity has to offer and suffering it from the inside because he's a God of perfect love. And incidentally, there's not another picture of God out there on the market in any religion or philosophy that compares to this. This, this is the only message that dares to say this, and I think it's the only picture of God that is at all credible. A God who's on the inside of suffering. The church tradition, someone came up with the brilliant idea that God is above suffering. God's above suffering. He's impassable. He's immutable. Well, the cross teaches the exact opposite of that. You think the problem of evil is a problem for humans? Well, it's more of a problem for God because he's got an infinite greater capacity to love and therefore infinitely greater capacity to enter into the experiences of others. He's on the inside of all of that. And so we've got to know that whatever we go through, whatever we go through, God's on the inside of that. He's not causing that. He's not just watching that. He's on the inside of that. You never, ever suffer alone. That's what the New Testament says. That if we suffer, we suffer with him. He, he participates in our suffering as we participate in his that the union is that close. He's on the inside of that. You've got to know that there is no sense in which God smiles at the horrors of this world. No sense in which he wills it, ordains it, or anything of the sort. No, the, what the, the cross means anything. It means God absolutely hates, in every sense of the word, without qualification, he hates children getting gassed. He hates people being unjustly killed. He hates sex trafficking. He hates Ebola viruses that kill people. He hates wars. He hates the bombs. He hates all the, the nightmares that people go through, whatever form it takes. He's altogether against it. In no sense does he approve of it. But he's also on the inside of it. He's on the inside of it. He knows. He knows. He experiences from the inside. So it's, you're never alone in what you go through. But he's not just there to be there, though that is a comfort. And, and lean on him. Maybe you're in a situation where Gabby is, where you don't know how much time you've got because you're wrestling with cancer. That can be terrifying. Lean on him because he is there. Know that your experience is not alone. There's at least one other who understands exactly what you're going through. And his name is Jesus Christ. But he's not just there to be there. He's there to bring healing and redemption. He's always working together for the good. Always. Jesus died on the cross, showing that he's a God who empathizes, he's on the inside of suffering, but he's on the cross for the purpose of getting to the resurrection. And folks, the resurrection is where the good news starts. The resurrection is, is the, 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 the confirmation that the God whose love looks like Calvary wins in the end. It's the affirmation that God's love will be victorious. The good news is not that everything right now is going according to plan, because it's not. This world's a war zone, and as I said, God hates a great deal of what goes on here. That's not good news. It wouldn't be good news if if it was true that he's ordaining everything, because that would reflect really poorly on the character of God. Not really good news. The good news is that it won't always be like this, praise God. It won't always be like this. And this is how we, while we still look evil in the face, and we don't just block it out. We go out of our way to look at it and, 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 and enter into it, but we can, in the midst of a world, even as... Nightmares as this world can be, we can be and we must be a people who are very optimistic, a people who live in confidence and hope, a people who can have joy in all circumstances. Because we know that this isn't the last word. Death isn't the last word. Nightmares aren't the last word. Evil isn't the last word. No. God's love is the last word. His victory is the last word. The resurrection is the last word. He wins in the end, and that's the good news. Amen. Amen. The confidence is knowing that He'll come and complete what he began 2,000 years ago. He will. He's coming back for his bride. And that's good news. So we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we're going to turn now to this, what we call the sign of the covenant, communion. And it's just a sign that reminds us. God gave us this to remind us of, of the covenant, who we're in covenant with and who we're called to be. And so we look at the broken body of Jesus, and it was symbolized by the bread and the cup, which symbolizes the blood. 
And this, I'd like us to be just aware today as we take communion that that, that that broken body and the shed blood means that God is not a spectator God or a controlling God. God is the God whose character is revealed on the cross. A God who freely chooses to enter into the worst that this world has to offer and is on the inside of all of our pain. And then secondly, let it remind us that that, that cross was victorious and will be shown to be so before too long. And that God will wipe away every tear from our eye and someday there'll be no more sorrow and sickness and disease and wars and sex trafficking and children being gassed. Someday the world will be the way the world was supposed to be. And let it fill your heart with hope. And thirdly, as we take this, let it remind us that this is who we're called to be. We're called to be a people who go out of our way to empathize with those who are being crushed by a system, those who are victimized, those who are hurting. And to enter into it the way God enters into our suffering. Because Michael Brown is not just someone else's son. If we're living in love, he's our son. And so we join the voices that go, ouch. And this is happening. So Holy Spirit, now as we enter into this time of communion, I pray, Lord, that you make it real, tangible, sear into us the truth of your character, sear into us the truth that you're on the inside of all we go through, sear into us, Lord God, the motivation to live in love as you have loved us and given your life for us. Be glorified now in Jesus' name.